Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. It is so wonderful to be back in the pulpit again. My warmest thanks to Brent for stepping up to the plate last week when I was on the injured reserve list. What a timely word for us from our dear brother Brent. God has blessed Harrison Hills with such gifted teachers, so we are grateful for him. And in that same vein, it was a joy this week to have kicked off Men of Valor, having the men's ministry breakfast on Saturday, introducing our curriculum for the coming months. If you are a man or not, or were not able to make it on Saturday for the launch, plan <laughs> caught that. Yeah. Plan on being here Thursday nights at six where we kick off our time of teaching and fellowship for our men of HHBC. Man, you will be lifted up, you'll be encouraged, you'll be mentored, you'll be discipled, and you'll grow as God has called us to. Ladies, guys are really bad with schedules and times, so Thursday night, make sure to kick him out of the house. Amen? Amen. Well, whether you brought your own Bible this morning or you need to grab one under the chair in front of you, grasp the living word in your hands and turn with me to the awe-inspiring gospel of Mark. We are so excited after, two, after a two-week topical break for Easter to finally be returning to our series titled Last Things as we make our way through the 13th chapter of Mark. We find ourselves about waist deep by now in the longest recorded response ever given by Jesus to a question posed. In this case, a question posed by Peter, James, John, and Andrew back in verse 3. And Jesus' answer, of course, being known as the Olivet Discourse. And this all kicking off, you will recall, with the disciples looking back at the temple with wonderment. And Jesus telling them that not one stone would be left upon another. And that scene opened our series of last things titled 70 A.D. And we did a deep dive into the temple, its destruction by the Romans in 70 A.D. And we began introducing principles in the study of eschatology, that of both near and far fulfillment, as well as types and antitypes. And all of these were perhaps, well, new terms for some when we began, but I hope that that's really started expanding for you now. We often need to grab our binoculars in eschatology, don't we? How many of you have used binoculars before, right? And they have that, that focusing wheel or that knob on the top. And you're looking at a bird that's close in, so you adjust the wheel. But then everything behind it becomes fuzzy and far away, right? You can only see it dimly. But now we want to see far, and so we rotate the bezel back the other direction, and it becomes clear. And those principles came in right at the outset as we looked at the destruction of the temple, seeing not only the near fulfillment, binoculars in, in 70 AD of its destruction, but that pointed also to a far greater fulfillment, binoculars out, when not only would the temple burn, but the whole world would burn. And Peter looked to that day, recording in his second epistle, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great roar, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and its works that are in it will be burned up. So for those who are concerned about global warming, as a Christian, you can share that concern. There is a terrible global warming that's coming. The entire earth will melt and be burned up. 
but, not, but the cause is not the emission of CO2, it is the emission of sin. And perhaps we, the church, ought to be as fervent evangelists for God's coming global warming as the environmentalists are for their crusade. Are we not constantly being warned by them? Yes. Are we not called by them to live our lives differently in light of the supposed coming calamity? Do they not want to fundamentally alter every aspect of our lives to change the way that we think and act as citizens of a global planet because of a 0.01 degree temperature increase over 50 years? How much more ought we to call out? Him we proclaim, Paul told the Colossians, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And certainly warning and teaching are part and parcel of eschatology, aren't they? It requires a lot of teaching and it contains many warnings. But we want you to be mature, beloved, in these matters. Sober-minded, joyful, ready, happy warriors. And Jesus' response about the temple's destruction in verse 2 then gave way in verse 3 for what we titled the following message, A Question for the Ages. And there we examine verses 3 through 5 that read, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, See to it that no one deceives you. We saw there truly the question from Jesus' inner circle that, that really kicked off the Olivet Discourse. And yet Mark, in his very truncated, very abbreviated style of writing, he doesn't give us the fullest view of the question, which sent us hunting over to Matthew's account of this. And there we observe their question was not merely, when would these things be fulfilled? But they asked, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That really was the heartbeat of the question. It's not merely about when the temple would be destroyed or when one stone would not be left upon another, but rather, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And what did that do for us? That necessarily drove us into the arms of studying some Jewish eschatology to gain an understanding of how Peter and Andrew and James and John would have understood it to be. Being reminded, for example, that they were not looking for a rapture of any sort. Indeed, how could they? The entire concept of the church age was a mystery at this point. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So forget a rapture of any kind. There's no such thing for them. Nor were they looking for a second coming of Messiah's consummation. If Jesus was here, if Messiah was here, he was going to rule and he was going to reign. He was going to restore Israel. There was no leaving and coming back again. Right? That was a completely foreign concept. And yet we know as they watched our risen Lord being caught up into the clouds, they had to toss everything they thought they knew about the coming consummation of the age. Beloved, if you've ever found it difficult or hard to dislodge yourself from certain traditions of eschatology, what you may have been raised with, if you find it hard to change, 
you don't have it nearly as bad as these poor disciples. Sometimes new information and the passage of time and events cause us to reevaluate what we thought we knew in such difficult areas of study. For the disciples, it was the Messiah who had come, and now he's leaving. (laughs) He's going back to his father. And for us, we now have 2,000 years of history to help focus our binoculars. Behold, I am coming soon. We have seen Israel restored as a nation, something never accomplished in all of history. Never, beloved, has a people group been scattered and reformed back into their own nation. Not ever. Now, that doesn't change the meaning of the text, but it does focus our binoculars for us. It's not the text that's incomplete or wrong or changing in any way. It's us that need the help to see. So history and events, they all help bring clarity to these difficult subjects. And finally, the question for the ages by the disciples gave way to the answer for the ages. Kicking off, of course, our installment in Last Things titled Birth Pains. And here we have our first time beginning really to, well, to put some chalk lines on the ground, to begin setting up a few chess pieces on the board of human and redemptive history. And we laid down some very foundational principles in this first installment to dive into the Olivet Discourse or indeed any apocalyptic or eschatological books like Revelation or Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah are, well, they're intimidating for many. How many of you avoid those books? We want to help remove that fear. Thus, we visited such foundational topics like the relationship of Israel to the church, the relationship of the rapture, the taking up of the church and the second coming of Christ and where that lies in the timeline of the coming tribulation described in our text, along with so much more. (laughs) So with that reminder, beloved, let us open again with our text, one that's becoming very familiar to you now, Mark 13, 6 through 8. Mark 13, 6 through 8. Jesus speaks, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this third part of examining your Olivet Discourse of looking to the birth pains that are to come. Lord, these are difficult subjects. Lord, not only just intellectually, but Lord, for us to wrap our hearts and our spirits around. Holy Spirit, we are in desperate need of you this morning to allow us to see your word, to allow it to apply it rightly, that we might know how then shall we live. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide and be with our hearts that it might bring forth Fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, you may recall as we opened our fascinating dive into eschatos, into our study of last things, insofar as it relates to the text of the Olivet Discourse, that we answered the big question up front that people have always pondered. 
Are we living in the end times? Well, according to Jesus, yes, we are. According to 2 Peter, the entire third chapter, yes, we are. The end times, which culminates with the end of days, very simply are comprised of the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. So you live in the end times. There's no need to question that or wonder. And we emphasize this truth because it drives home a critical point of application for why we are learning these difficult topics. If we are living in the end times, by definition, how then shall we live? Jesus pondered, or Peter, excuse me, pondered, and he answered this very question again in his second epistle, asking this, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. That's your takeaway. And through the study of eschatology, we come face to face with so many attributes of God, don't we? We're forced to look at attributes some really don't like. His anger, his wrath, his judgment. And yet as a mercy to us, our study of this brings about a greater knowledge of the depths of sin, doesn't it? Not only the corrosive depravity of mankind, but likewise the preserving effects of the church, of Christians upon the world. What salt and light we are to be. And indeed, what happens when salt and light will be removed from the world and how fast it decays and rots very fast. When we look at what God is ultimately going to do to the earth and its inhabitants because of sin, when we take in the totality of the destruction and the death that will come with the seals being opened and the scroll being unfurled, we stop playing patty cake with our own sin and we cut it off with aggressive severity. We are laying out something of a review this morning, beloved, not, not only because we've, well, we've been out of the Olivet Discourse for three weeks, and that can be a long time for these kind of topics, right? We, we forget these things, but to remind us of the why. What, pastor, do the four horsemen of the apocalypse, apocalypse have to do with my life when I leave the parking lot this afternoon and head to Cracker Barrel? It is this. Knowing how fiercely God will deal with sin, we must deal fiercely with ours. Don't trifle or toy with the very thing that caused the death of God's only son on a cross, but will result in the entire earth being melted down. Should our severity towards sin not desire to match God's? Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what People ought you to be. You ought to live holy and godly lives. Beloved, part of being a follower of Christ is not only to love what God loves, but it's also to hate what God hates. It's two sides of the same coin. Boy, we really don't like to hear that in 2023, do we? We often like to specialize on the love side of the equation. But beloved, if we do not equally hate what God hates, if we play, if we dance and we flirt with our own sin, we will minimize it. We'll toy with it like a coiled viper when we should hate it and flee. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude 1.23 Beloved, the study of last things, of eschatology, is not an academic exercise. It's not end times entertainment. 
It is deeply, deeply practical to the Christian as we behold in awesome wonder what God is going to do in response to sin. And how then shall we, his children, live? If we follow Jesus' teaching here, beloved, if we grasp it intellectually and emotionally and spiritually, if we grasp it with our whole man, if we grasp it in our heart, meaning the the seat of our will, we will be given one of the most able auxiliaries, one of the most able weapons in defeating our own sin, on keeping our eyes on Christ, on him who is our reward. And remember, beloved, he is our reward. Heaven is not our reward. As so many confuse, Christ is our reward. If we were offered all the pleasures of family and friends and food and peace and pleasures forevermore in heaven, but no Christ, we would have none of it. How do we do that? How do we get there to be holding and treasuring Christ in such a way? Beloved, sin clouds our vision. And our love for Christ. The more sin fades, the clearer the sun becomes. And to behold him is to love him and to desire him. So if we have a tremendous tool in our auxiliary to defeat sin, that we might see Christ more clearly, we must grasp it. And we must hold on. Study of the end times, of God's severity towards sin, is such a propellant to treasuring the true price that is awaiting and even now is the lover of your soul. Back in our text, as we forge deeper into the Olivet Discourse, having landed on verses 6 through 8 for three messages now, I appreciate your patience, we titled these installments Birth Pains. Birth Pains. And that's a critical term used by Jesus because it sets our timeline. Jesus says in verse 8 that when we see all of these things come to pass, these are but the beginning of birth pains. And that's ever so instructive for us. And recall that we boiled that down by working backwards a bit, didn't we? If we have birth pains, we know that we must have a baby at the end. If we know what the baby is, then we should know when we should see birth pains. And we saw that the baby is the second coming of Christ. The new birth is the new creation. It's the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It's the dawning of the millennium, the a thousand years where Christ will rule and reign. That's the newborn. Thus, if Jesus' ascension began, with the birth, began the birth conception of the last days, which we are in. We don't know how long the pregnancy will be. No one knows the day or hour. And we're going to have some pains and some discomforts along the way, meaning we will experience earthquakes, famines, wars, deceptions along the way. And those certainly stand as, as close in, tangible reminders to us of the consequences of sin, and of the groaning of creation. But the Holy Spirit is still restraining sin in the world at this point. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 And yet we are shown that when the church is caught up in the air with Christ, when it's removed from the earth, the moment that the preserving, salty element of God's people are removed from this earth, that's when the water breaks and the birth pains begin. 
And so this gives us our timeline. If the proverbial baby is the second coming, not the rapture, the second coming, seen in Revelation 19 to the end, then what Jesus is describing in the Olivet Discourse are the birth pains. Just prior to birth, that which happens just prior to Jesus' second coming. And those birth pains are called the tribulation. The seven years that will bring about the Antichrist and the bowls of wrath and judgment. And we review this again, beloved, not only for the sake of clarity. Knowing these are new concepts for some. That this takes a few times to, to wrap our heads around. I know it did for me when we were learning this. But even greater than that. Even greater, if we miss the timeline here, beloved, when these events will happen as described by our Lord, then we risk missing the entire message, the entire warning of the severity of God's wrath against sin. Meaning we risk giving equal weight to the wars we see now with the wars in the text. The deception we see now with the deception in our text. The earthquakes and the famines and that we see now with those spoken of in our text. And by so doing, if we confuse those two, we neuter and we, we really castrate the very warnings contained in Jesus' words. If we think that a little skirmish like World War II were the wars and rumors of war spoken of by Jesus, we set people up for quite a shock. Revelation 14 tells us it will be far worse than that. Blood so high that horses could walk for 200 miles in their bridles up in blood. That's the reality. We dare not miss the timeline. We recovered from World War II. Every other war in history, nations have moved on. The world has moved on. Not after these. And still, as we move forward in our series, we desire to, well, to really demonstrate the beautiful tapestry of the Olivet Discourse that's been woven throughout Scripture. Oh, and of course, why? To Scripture having one author. And as we traced it through, it took us first to the apocalyptic and eschatological book of Revelation. And beginning in chapter 5, we observed an incredible scene in heaven. We saw there a scroll with seven seals upon it. And recall that heaven is crying at this point, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one could do it. No one was worthy until an elder speaks up, Revelation 5, 5, and says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And each one of these seven seals, as we learned, represents a, a divine judgment that's to be poured out on the earth during the time of the tribulation which of course culminates with the return of Christ. Recall, if you will, the first four of these seals, the first four of these judgments occur in the first part, the first half of the tribulation, meaning the first three and a half years of the total seven years of tribulation. And the fifth seal, which we'll cover next week, happens in really kind of in a transition between the first and second half. And finally, the last two seals, the last two judgments upon the earth will be opened in the last half, the last three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. And within that seal are contained seven trumpet judgments and seven bowl judgments, something to hang on to as we come up to that. And as we moved into chapter 6 of Revelation, as it foresees Christ opening each of the seven seals, we watch in wonderment 
as the seals on the scroll correspond perfectly to the sequence of events in the Olivet Discourse, right? And you'll recall from our series that the first four seals are all represented by a horse and a rider. Now, most are familiar with the term, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Perhaps from folklore or Hollywood or as a phrase, but this is the origination of that term. And recall that these are not people per se, but these four seals represent forces and actions and events like war and earthquakes and famine and death. Back to our text, as we look to Jesus' first birth pain, our first sign, what do we see? Looking to our text again, Mark 13, 6. Mark 13, 6. Many will, say in my na- many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will, lis- will mislead many. So we first see the proliferation of false teachers in the tribulation, didn't we? In, the first, in part one of our series. And what does that mean exactly? Do we have those today? Of course, we have something of a near fulfillment of that in the church age, but to a very mild degree. Today, most people you would think of who claim to be Christ would be some sort of crazy on the street corner or guys like David Koresh or the like. Yet that's not what we see reflected in our text. In fact, you will recall we looked further on in verses 21 and 22, did we not? And we saw Jesus circle back around to these false Christs. Reading, and then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And Matthew's account says the same. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So the deception of this time is like nothing we see today. These false messiahs are not guys on the street corner spouting off. They have power. They will perform signs and wonders. The deception will be so strong that if it were possible to deceive the very elect of God here, meaning that though, talking about those he will save during the tribulation, these guys could do it. And we know that people will be clamoring for answers in this time, won't they? They'll be clamoring for leadership and stability as the systems are melting down. And even our short time in a a pandemic of sorts gave us just a passing taste of that, didn't it? Many will come offering solutions. Some of those solutions cloaked in religious counsel. And we watched as the first sign of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is the first seal to be broken on the scroll by Christ. Looking to Revelation 6, we saw the first seal was a white horse, is one who brings with it a false peace, a solution to all the world's problems as it's melting down. Many will come offering that, Jesus tells them. Do not believe them. Do not follow them. And they are given speed and demonic power by the one who is to come, the Antichrist. And we have yet to dive into that, not until verse 14. Hang on for that one. But the Spirit is already at work, allowing these false Christs to perform signs and wonders. And thus, this first seal, this rider, he brings a false peace. And this will be through diplomacy and deception, through political maneuvering and religious persuasion. Some are tempted to see the first rider, the white horse, as the person of the Antichrist, meaning that he who sat on it had a bow and that a crown was given to him and he went out to conquer and to conquer. 
While that can't be dismissed out of hand, seeing as how the other three horses are not people, but they're actually forces, it's best to keep that thread and that consistent hermeneutic through all four of them. And thus this white horse is that false peace that will come. We, saw, we see here that the crown isn't taken by force and by blood. What does it say? That a crown is given. It is gladly given. They are desperate for leadership and answers. And that false peace will only then be shattered by the second rider. Looking back to our text, Jesus' second sign is what? Mark 13, we can pull up verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now pause there. What is Jesus' next sign? War. Well, you'll never guess what the second rider is in Revelation 6. What is it? Revelation 6, 4. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So yes, wars have always been with us, but this is massive, unprecedented war. Wars that will ultimately climax with a final culmination bent on destroying Israel, which would be hard to do, beloved, if Israel didn't exist as a nation. If they were just a scattered people group, that would be hard to do but they're a nation now, once again. And they will desire to wipe her off the map. Beloved, Satan has always desired to kill God's chosen people. Whether the Jews through Holocaust atrocities in history, or we as Gentiles, the church who has been grafted in, Satan's aim has always been thus. But beloved, let us be reminded of a great truth during this horrible time, a truth that is as real and as tangible as the breath you just took. Beloved, this incredible war that will come on the plains of Megiddo, Armageddon as it's called, the wars that will come as nation rises against nation, as the red horse breaks the peace. What do we remember? Whose horse is that? Is that Satan running unchecked? Whose wrath is represented in the red horse? Is it Satan's? Not hardly. The second rider came from the second seal. And whose scroll, whose seal is it? It is Christ's. The lamb broke the seal. And not only that, but watch the sovereignty of God, beloved. Watch this. Looking to the prophet of Zechariah, his incredible account of this final cataclysmic battle where the nations will join in forces to destroy Israel. Well, Christ will arrive in his second coming to protect and to save her. Watch this. Zechariah 14, verses 2 and 3. No need to turn there. I'll, I'll read it for you, beloved. It's the Lord speaking here. Watch this. Speaking of Armageddon, speaking of this final battle. Indeed, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city will go forth in exile. But those left of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations. 
as the day when he fights on a day of battle. Did you see what happened there? Satan, the Antichrist, is down there plotting and scheming and raging and plundering, but who's ultimately in charge? Who gathered the nations against Israel? Yahweh! And just as he raised them up for his purposes, he will smite them down. Full sovereignty going up, full sovereignty going down. The battle is his. The red horse is his. It's his seal. He's raising it up and he's putting it down. Why? Why do that? Why in one verse say you're actually gathering those nations to battle against Jerusalem and then in the next verse verse, say, now I'm going to fight those nations to make Israel's situation helpless. I'm going to orchestrate an impossible situation where only I, your Lord, can save you. He raises them up and he puts them down for his glory. I'm going to give you no other way out, Israel, but divine intervention. And God has always done that with his people. It's all over the Old Testament. 2 Kings 19, the Assyrians had utterly surrounded Jerusalem. They were surrounded by 185,000 troops. Can you visualize that? They were absolutely done for. There was no help but God. But listen to 1 Kings 19.35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death. 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Saints, if that does not impact and inform every area of your life, if that's not how you've seen God up to this point in your Christian life, it's a new day. What is an anxious Christian? Looking even to Armageddon, even if one were a tribulation saint, one saved during this horrible future time, look at Zechariah. He's telling you, you that you could stand in the middle of the plains of Megiddo as the armies are assembling for the war of all wars and you could raise your arms and you could cry, look at all that my heavenly father is doing and be at perfect peace. Grab hold of that, saints. Grab hold of it and don't let it go. It'll change your life. May God be so big in your sight that everything else pales. Nothing compares. I believe it was the dearly departed Sproul who said, there's not a rogue molecule on the planet. There's not a rogue molecule on the planet. He's Lord over all. If that doesn't give you rest tonight, nothing can. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Our last journey now through the remainder of verse 8, the last part of verse 8, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Jesus' third sign, that brought us, of course, to the third seal in Revelation chapter 6. When he broke the third seal, I heard the living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. 
And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and wine. Encompassed in all that Jesus is saying here are all manner of natural disasters, earthquakes. Of course, all this brings about rampant disease. And speaking of the the quart of wheat and the denarius, this was telling us, remember, that people are living hand to mouth, that a day's wage buys a day's food, nothing more. This is complete desperation. That crops and harvesting will be ground to a halt. That water supplies will be contaminated. Even the tides and the seasons will be thrown off, causing all manner of disaster, causing the kind of suffering where death is the only relief where Scripture will cry out for the mountains to fall on them, to crush them. And in what some might call a mercy, given the state of the world, that now ushers in our fourth seal, our fourth and final horse rider. Revelation 6 again, verses 7 and 8. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And then I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And he who sits on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The pale horse is tied in with Jesus' signs in the Olivet Discourse. It's the natural result of all the wars and the disasters, the famine, the plague, the starvation. This is death on a massive scale. Based on today's population numbers, we're talking about the death of close to 2 billion people. Now, some speculate that this must be nuclear in nature, and while that certainly may play a part, it's by no means necessary. In human history, disease and sickness have killed far more than any battle wounds. And thus we see how the four seals and the four horses and their riders work very much together in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. After the church has been taken from the earth, as the systems quickly break down, that people will cry out. And there will come a false peace, a white horse. Many will come in my name, promising this, Jesus says. And then a red horse, that of war, will come and shatter that peace. War like we have never seen. Jesus tells of wars and rumors of wars, making way, of course, for a black horse and rider, signifying famine, natural disasters, and earthquakes. And Jesus says exactly that right in the sequence of the Olivet Discourse, giving way finally to the pale horse of death, a culmination of all the previous three, taking an unimaginable toll, 25% of the world's population wiped out. We're just loads of good news this morning, aren't we? Oh, yes. We are. We are. I saw someone write this week that those who understand Scripture in this way have a pessimistic eschatology. I had to smile. True love, true joy can only be grounded in truth, saints. Dr. John MacArthur famously said, Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive. To make heaven less appealing. To make hell less horrific and the gospel less urgent. If that is the battlefield, saints, tell me, 
How has what you have learned so far in the Olivet Discourse spoken to that reality? What do we think now about the offensiveness of sin? How appealing is heaven now? How horrific, merely seeing what God will do to the earth. How horrific is hell now? And therefore, how urgent is the gospel now? Having a right eschatology, beloved, is not pessimistic. It puts you right in the heart of the fight, with clear eyes and full hearts. Recognize, beloved, if we do not look with an honest heart toward the effects of sin and how God ultimately will deal with this sin, we will miss a massive category that God chooses to glorify himself in. In dealing with his creation, there are only two options, beloved. Either through mercy that comes through being hidden in Christ, through coming to Christ in repentance and faith, which, by the way, can happen right here, right now. If Christ the risen Savior is not a reality in your life, and you know it's not, come in repentance and faith. Cry out to him, and he will save you. God is glorified in that way. But God will be glorified either by extending mercy, as I pray he has or is to everyone listening this morning, or he is glorified by meeting out justice. And how he chooses to bring himself glory, whether through showing mercy or through justice, is the prerogative of the divine. But both are present here today, just as both will be present in the time of the tribulation. Saints, the truth of the Olivet Discourse does not cause us to bunker down waiting for an apocalypse to fall. We are joyful warriors. By revealing sin to be more offensive, by revealing hell more horrific, by making the gospel more urgent, we make heaven more beautiful. And in light of that, beloved, how then shall we live? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for, Lord, not only laying out the battle lines for us, but Lord, knowing that the battle is won. Knowing, Lord, that you have gone before us in this, that you've seen the end from the beginning. Lord, that causing us to see the offensiveness of sin, the horrificness of hell, Lord, has spurred us on to see the urgency of the gospel and the beauty of heaven. Lord, we ask that this truth would go down deep this week as you keep us till we meet again in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.